0: to talk
1: about fluids why does this patient need fluids
2: is seven percent difference really the right number to target
1: so why was the mortality that much higher
3: Is a secondary outcome serious adverse events
1: how do we incorporate
0: this study into our practice
3: now i'm not saying
1: volume is the way to go
0: i'm not surprised at all
1: Welcome, everyone, to Critical Care
0: Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, and we are so excited, so happy that you are joining us yet again for another CCPEM podcast. And we are excited to talk about yet another hot-off-the-press article that actually, at the time of this recording, was just published online in the New England Journal of Medicine just about, well, eight days ago, so it couldn't get more hotter off the press in terms of the topic. But before I do that, let me bring in my CCPEM partners in crime, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. Gentlemen, as always a pleasure to record with you and discuss, well, what many know that we love to discuss, and that is something related to fluid. But let me first say, welcome. How are you guys doing? Peter, I'm going to start with you.
3: So, hey guys, things are heating up in New Orleans. A little bit of a bump with COVID, but the temperatures have just absolutely skyrocketed. We had two heat-associated illnesses in the ED just yesterday. So things are heating up.
0: Understood. And I'm watching the national news and just seeing that significant heat wave across the Southeast. Perhaps we in an upcoming podcast probably pretty soon need to focus on some heat related (laughs) critical illness resuscitation. Rob, how are you doing this podcast?
2: Doing great. We also are feeling the heat out here. We had temps in the 90s, which is very unusual for San Francisco, and it made for a sweaty uh, Pride weekend. We saw a lot of patients from that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so pretty hot out here as well.
0: Well, John, we may not be as warm here in the Northeast, but we certainly were a week or so ago, and I think it's going to get back to sweltering temps very soon here. But how are things in Philly?
1: Overall things are great. I can't complain. It's beautiful as usual. We are in our usual surge of it is nice out, which often coincides with the trauma volumes, which uh, unfortunately continue to be high in Philly. We just had a large shooting in South Philly just the other day that had a lot of people spread across the sea at different trauma sites. So definitely getting a lot of exercise and trauma care in Philly right now. But as far as how the rest of us are doing, I think overall we're hanging in. We're doing pretty well.
0: All right. Well, let's shift over to our education, our topic for this podcast. And we are, as I mentioned, going to get back to some fluids and specifically fluids in the setting of patients who have septic shock. And this is based on an article that was just published, as I mentioned, eight days ago online in the New England Journal of Medicine. Lead author is Dr. Mayhoff, and it is entitled restriction of intravenous fluids in ICU patients with septic shock. So Dr. Rodriguez, set the stage for us. Why did this trial occur and why do we need to be talking about this?
2: Yeah, this is a great study. As you all know, septic shock is a frequent problem that we see in the ED and the ICU. We see it every day, literally. And IV administration, IV fluids are key to the resuscitation and management of patients with septic shock. And the current surviving sepsis campaign guidelines suggest an initial volume fluid resuscitation of 30 cc's per kilo for patients with septic shock and those who have signs of hypoperfusion. But this recommendation was downgraded during the 2021 update. However, there's really no standard or no real recommendation on a fluid strategy for patients who continue to have signs of hypoperfusion after this initial fluid bolus. And so we've discussed many times here on CCPEM, the potential harms of large volumes of fluids, things like worsening respiratory failure, sometimes worsening acute kidney injury and other issues. And so this is a very topical study and really important for us to review.
0: Outstanding introduction, Rob. So just to set the stage, we're not talking about the controversies on the initial fluid bolus. We're talking about, well, what should we think about after that fluid bolus has been administered? Should we do a restrictive versus a standard care fluid resuscitation strategy? And to that end, the objective of this study was simply to evaluate the effects of restriction of IV fluids on mortality and other outcomes in adult patients with septic shock who are admitted to the ICU. So Dr. Greenwood, take us through the specifics, get a little bit more granular as to the classic trial.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Mike. So this was an international stratified parallel group, but open label randomized control trial. So the trial took place in 31 intensive care units in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, Italy, Czech Republic, the UK, and Belgium. So these are very high functioning ICUs in very developed countries. The patients included Adults who were over 18, they were obviously admitted to ICU and qualified by having septic shock, which was defined as having infection with a lactate greater than two, ongoing infusion of vasopressors or inotropes to maintain resuscitation endpoints, and received at least one liter of IV fluids before screening. Now, the onset of shock had to be within 12 hours of that initial screening period. Now, there were patients who were excluded if they were screened 12 hours after that period, had life-threatening bleeding, an acute burn injury that involved greater than 10% BSA, and no pregnant patients were included as well. So the intervention was a little bit complex, but worth noting kind of some specifics, because I think this will help us interpret the results a little bit better. So These patients were randomized one-to-one ratio to receive either the restrictive IV fluids or standard IV fluids. Now the treatment groups weren't masked. This was an open label trial. They weren't masked for patients, clinicians, investigators at all. But when we've defined the restrictive group, so patients were essentially given 250 to 500 mLs of crystalloid, but only for certain reasons. And so the restricted group had to meet this criteria in order to receive this fluid bolus. They had to be classified as severe hypoperfusion. So having a lactate greater than four, have a mean arterial pressure less than 50 despite getting vasopressor or vasoactive support, have significant modeling that went beyond the edge of the kneecap. Now we've talked about capillary refill time before in Europe, the Modeling scores often apply to patients on the kneecap. It's very sensitive for hypoperfusion or urine output less than one mLs per kilo during the first two hours of randomization. They also could be given fluids. This is the restricted group, remember, to replace documented fluid losses, to correct dehydration or electrolyte deficiencies, or to ensure a total daily fluid intake of about a liter. Now, the standard IV fluid group did not have any restrictions on the amount of fluids that were given. They were given for the following conditions in general to improve hemodynamic factors, to replace expected or observed losses or correct dehydration electrolyte balances, that sort of thing, or maintenance fluids in the ICU these patients did receive enteral and oral fluids in both groups. So that wasn't controlled here. And the fluids were used as a medium for medication administration, as was allowed in most patients. So the primary outcome they looked at here was 90 day mortality. And they looked at a few other important secondary outcomes. So the number of patients who had one or more serious adverse events in the ICU, or had a significant acute kidney injury that was a severe acute kidney injury, the number of severe adverse events or reactions to the IV fluids, the number of days alive without life support at 90 days, and the number of days alive and out of the hospital at day 90. The statistical analysis estimated that about a little over 1,500 patients would be needed to have a 80% power to detect an absolute difference in 7% of this 90-day mortality primary endpoint.
0: Outstanding job, John. Thanks so much for taking us through the methods and taking the time that you did to go through and really understand and go over the restrictive IV fluid group versus the standard I think is really important. And we may circle back on that as we talk about some limitations. All right, Peter, take us through the results. What did the classic trial investigators find?
3: Well, in the classic trial, guys, in total, Over 1,500 patients were analyzed, so a total of 1,545. In the restricted IV fluid group, we saw 764 patients. In the standard IV fluid group, we had 781 patients. The patient characteristics were well-balanced between these two groups. The median volume of IV fluids in 24 hours before they were randomized In the restrictive IV fluid group, about 3,200 cc's. And in the standard IV fluid group, only three liters, so 300. So a difference between the two groups before enrollment looks like to be 200 cc's. The median highest dose of norepinephrine in the restrictive IV fluid group, it was 0.25 mics per kg per minute. And in the standard IV fluid group, it was incredibly close at 0.23 mics per kg per minute. So the patients in both groups had a median ICU length of stay of five days. So they were equivalent there. When we talk about IV fluid interventions, the median volume of IV fluids administered in the ICU. Got it? And so the restrictive IV fluid group had 1,798 cc's. In the standard IV fluid group, check this out, 3811 cc's, right? So we're looking at substantial increased difference between the two. That difference was just over two liters at two liters and 13 cc's, right? So the median cumulative volume of all fluids given in the ICU, For our restricted IV fluid group, just over 10 liters at 10,433 cc's. In the standard IV fluid group, it was over 12 liters. So 12,747 cc's with a difference of over two liters at 2,314 cc's. So the median cumulative fluid balance in the restricted IV fluid group 1,645 cc's in the standard IV fluid group, 2368 cc's with a difference being 723 cc's. So we can see that there were differences between the two groups here. The protocol violations and the restrictive IV fluid group, 162 patients, about 21.5% had protocol violations. In the standard IV fluid group, that was only 101 or 13%. So a difference 21.5% in the restrictive group and looking to be 13% in the standard group. The primary outcome, what we're really looking for here, the 90-day mortality, not substantially different between the two. In the restricted IV fluid group, 42.3% 90-day mortality. And in the standard IV fluid group, It was 42.1% mortality. So adjusted absolute difference of 0.1%. So really for our primary outcome, no difference. In the secondary outcome, serious adverse events. So we look at the restrictive IV fluid group, 29.4%. If we look in the standard IV fluid group, that goes to 30.8%. So not substantially different. Serious adverse events after IV fluid administration in the restricted IV fluid group, 4.1%, identical in the standard IV fluid group of 4.1%. So the number of days alive without life support, no change between the two. The number of days alive and out of the hospital, no change between the two.
0: All right, Peter. So from what you're telling us, over 1,500 patients well randomized. We can see all of these numbers with respect to the variations in fluids that the restrictive fluid group got versus the standard. And at the end of the day, 90-day mortality, no difference between either fluid strategy of administering these fluids in ICU patients with septic shock. Well, Rob, turning to you, analyzing this particular study, like every study we review, there's got to be some limitations. What say you on the limitations here of the classic trial?
2: Yeah, Mike. So first of all, this was an unblinded trial. Both the patients and more importantly, personnel, physicians, nurses, and, and the healthcare team were aware of group assignments. So that always can lead to some bias. There was no day data regarding co-interventions like pressors and other hemodynamic factors Those weren't accounted for. They were really not recorded. And then, as Peter mentioned, patients received a lot of IV fluids before enrollment. Again, patients were enrolled after 12 hours. It's hard to know what the effects would have been, say, you started the study at, let's say, six hours or even sooner in their ICU course. Again, Peter noted that there were protocol violations on both sides, more protocol violations on the restricted group because I imagine some physicians and some of the healthcare team just felt like they needed to give more fluid for the patients. And then finally, the power of the study is 7% difference, really the right number to target. So those are the major limitations and otherwise pretty well done study.
0: All right. Thanks, Rob. John, putting you on the spot first. We've talked, as we let off, Rob let off the background saying, we've talked a lot about fluids. We love to talk about fluids. And in this particular study, there are talking about what to do in essence after that initial fluid bolus for patients with septic shock. These are your patients. You're seeing them in the ICU. We've talked and focused a lot about the harms of too much fluid, but now we've got this trial saying, well, it actually wasn't any difference between trying to be more restrictive versus standard IV fluid therapy. so how do we incorporate this study into our practice? Do we stop focusing on a restrictive fluid strategy?
1: Uh, no <laughs> so a couple of things here I think we're discussing or at least I'm interested to hear you guys thoughts so if you actually look at the volume given in these patients, I would argue that both groups were largely restrictive as we were kind of going through I just took a look at process trial for example. First of all, the 90 day mortality in process trial was 30% between standard and the intervention group of early goal direct therapy. This one was 40 something percent. That's pretty high. And so I'm trying to wrap my head around. So why was the mortality that much higher and looking at the volumes of fluid given. So in process, for example, within the first 72 hours in process, about seven to eight liters of fluid were given, as opposed to this group here, which is much lower between like the two and three liter at five days. Like it's not a lot of volume. I'm not saying volume is the way to go. I actually don't care for their definition for triggers for fluid administration. We all know that lactate guided fluid administration is probably not a great idea. So using a lactate greater than four as a trigger for fluid boluses, probably not the best a map of 50. Okay. But again, like, I kind of want to know a little bit more, like why is there map 50 is a low cardiac output state. Is there something else going on? And a map of 50 is pretty low in general. I do like the inclusion of the modeling score. I think that's a great trigger. I am a believer in capillary refill time, you know, Andromeda shock trial. Although the P was 0.06, when they compared capillary refill time to lactate, the mortality of the CRT patients that was used as a trigger for fluid administration was significantly lower borderline P value. But I think if we look at it in the larger picture, it, it probably changed a lot of people's practice. And the urine output is generally flawed, right? Like We know AKI can happen from renal congestion. It can happen from pure inflammatory causes. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a hypoperfusion. Poor urine output in sepsis is very different from perioperative urine output quantification. So I wasn't surprised it was a null trial. I think comparing the differences between this trial and other modern day sepsis trials are very interesting. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change my practice. I think it's interesting, but I'm still much more of a believer of why does this patient need fluids, not just necessarily a restrictive or standard kind of administration regimen?
0: Really, really great points, John. Thanks so much for those. And I'm going to now turn to Rob for his thoughts.
2: Yeah, I'm with John on a lot of that. I think that this study really points to the fact that it's hard to make a big difference in sepsis trials. They're really, we've reviewed and there have been hundreds, literally hundreds, maybe even a thousand different sepsis trials, trying different agents, trying different fluid regimens, trying different goals of care type of things. And there are not too many things that make a huge difference. So I'm not surprised that they showed no difference between the two groups by an intervention that is just fluids. I'm not surprised at all. And I think this really just argues for tailored therapy, just individualize your fluids for your particular patient. If your patient, for example, appears to be getting hypoxic and septic, I'm probably not going to push fluids in that patient. On the other hand, if the patient's hypotensive, dry, lungs are clear, they're on 30% oxygen, and they may have a little bit of poor urine output, I'm probably going to push fluids in that patient. So... I think this really calls for individualized, tailored therapy rather than just one size
0: fits all. Great comments there, Rob. And Peter, final say, wrap this up, bring us home.
3: So gladly. So I'm going to be on the same bandwagon as John and Rob, and I'm going to make it a little bit more clear. In those patients that are hiding out in our EDs for days on end, waiting for an ICU bed, Particularly those who are on mechanical ventilation and have pulmonary infiltrates, we should probably be in a restrictive program for those patients, right? Because understanding if we fluid overload them, we can make their ARDS much worse and their hypoxia much worse. Now it's interesting to see, much like Promise and Arise trials, where early goal-directed therapy had already crept in to the mainstay, that there weren't really big changes. I think you're seeing the same thing here. I think that generally, as John pointed out, people are shifting more towards restrictive fluid therapy across the board. And so, you know, it kind of blends these two groups. I don't see us using an inordinate amount of fluids. And I think people are actually catching on to begin our vasopressors sooner, which is making less of a turn towards fluid bolusing. And so I'm not shocked by this trial overly, but I think part of that's the construct of the trial. But just to remind our listeners, particularly in those people on mechanical ventilation with pulmonary infiltrates, we might want to lean more towards the restrictive picture in those patients, which this really doesn't address, but it's worth emphasizing to everybody again.
0: And I think the three of you have hit really on one of the key things concerning the classic trial and exactly what John, you said, Peter, you re-emphasized in that it's likely almost all patients We're getting some degree of restrictive fluid resuscitation when you really look at the difference over the first day, the fifth day, up to 90 days in terms of their overall median fluid administration. So gentlemen, outstanding job analyzing this hot off the press article. Lots of folks are asking about it. The classic trial is now out online and I I really appreciate you taking the time to go through not only the methods, the study itself, and then the results and importantly, the key limitations and take home points. So with that, please let us know if you have any questions regarding this trial. As always, there will be that handout that is attached to this podcast that summarizes the trial as well. Please let us know if you have any questions or follow-up comments, and we will so look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.